Let me pray. God, God, we're thankful for you, and we're thankful for, for the ways in which you're providing for us at the church and the ways in which you're blessing us here at the church. God, this morning, uh, we come to you, and we are excited to, to dig into your word, to open up your word. God, like I pray every, every week, uh, God, I pray that the words that are coming out of, out of Pastor Rob's mouth this morning would be your words and not his words. We don't need human words this morning. We need your word for your people on your day. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning, church. It is good to be with you today, to be in the house of God, with the people of God. There's no better place that you could be. Amen? Amen. And so it's a joy for me to be here. Debbie sends her greetings this morning. She wishes she could be here. But all of our family, we have kids that live in Nashville, and so they're here with us for just a few days. And so I don't know how that works, but our grandkids were more important than you. And so uh, she's there today just loving on them as they fly home tomorrow. And, uh, but she wanted us to, to just understand that she's praying for you today. And so this morning, it's just a joy to be able to open our hearts to the Lord. And so I, I trust that if you're not exhausted from reading God's Word this week, do you have just a little more room for a little more of God's Word today? If you do, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. It'll be up on the screen in just a moment, but uh, I want us to just open our hearts and invite the Spirit to speak deeply into our, into our hearts. We long to be able to hear a word from the Lord today, and so we open our hearts to Him. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Would you listen to the word of the Lord? Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, This man welcomes sinners, and he even eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls all of his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. And so today we're here just inviting the Spirit to work through us. Have you ever taken time to consider why God, the creator of the universe, would make the decision to actually take up residence here among us? That the creator of all things would actually put on a flesh and blood body like ours with all of its weakness and move right into the neighborhood. And of course, uh, you know, we would ask, well, why would he do that? And our response is, well, he did it because he loves us. And God loves us because he can't help himself because God is love. Amen? God is love. We believe that. But we also have this very human hope somewhere underneath it all that God loves us because we're lovable, right? I mean, you're lovable, right? Turn to the person next to you and just say, you are so lovable. Would you tell somebody that this morning? You are so lovable. Except that all of us know the truth down deep inside. 
that there's a darkness, there's an ugliness that we've tried to change and we've never been able to change it. We've never really been able to get our act together, so to speak. And so we want to be lovable, but we're really not all that lovable. If you're not sure about that, just get on Facebook this afternoon or on Twitter and just see all the mean and angry things that people say to each other over politics and society and family and everything else going on in the world. We hurt people, even people that we love. And so why would a perfect, holy God make the decision to step into our world, into our brokenness, and take up residence in our neighborhood when it's really not that great a place? As I thought about that, I was reminded of the time right after Debbie and I had graduated from college And we were so excited, we took our first assignment in youth ministry. And uh, we felt like we were prepared. I had studied. They taught me how to be a great pastor. I was ready to go. And so we took this assignment in a church not far from Disneyland, and we were just going to save the world. I mean, we knew what to do. And uh, so we found a little apartment. Uh, It seemed like a nice place in a good area, and so we moved into the neighborhood. Well, it didn't take us very long to begin to figure out that the neighborhood, being our apartment, had a lot of young couples that were about our age, and these folks in our neighborhood loved to party loud and long. And so uh, one night, Debbie and I came home, and as we're walking up towards our apartment, we hear screaming, I mean blood-curdling screams. And we got a little closer, and all of a sudden we see this couple that live two doors down from us, and they're screaming at each other. And we see the lady, and she's got blood all over the front of her shirt. And then we see the guy, and he's covered in blood, and there's blood just pouring off of his face. And he's screaming at her, I'm going to kill you! I'm going to kill you! I'm going to get my gun and kill you! And he turned and went back into his apartment. In that moment, I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, now, what class was I in that the professor taught me what to do when a man is going to kill his wife and goes to get his gun to do it? And I couldn't remember that class. I couldn't remember that lecture. I must have fallen asleep because it just seemed that no one had prepared me for this moment. And so Debbie took care of the the lady and, and I went after the man and went into his apartment As I walked in, there was all kinds of stuff that was broken in the place. There was actually blood on the walls. They'd gotten in a fight where they were beating one another. They'd gotten into the kitchen, and there in the kitchen, as he was beating her, she'd taken hold of the glass blender, and she had just crushed him in the face several times, and it just split his face wide open. Discovered later that there was a baby sleeping in the other room. And so I went back into the bedroom, and here was Reggie, and he was getting out his gun, and and I was able to talk him down and get him to give me the gun, and and then took him into the bathroom and got some towels on his face, and a couple minutes later, the, the police showed up, and they took care of everything. But it was in that moment, as the cops walked in, that that I realized what the other neighbors, who were good friends with our neighbors, what their response was. They had locked the doors, they had pulled the blinds. They had called the cops. That was their response. And so you might imagine that after that, Debbie and I didn't really feel all that safe living in that neighborhood. Everything changed for us. And we realized that we had a decision that we were going to have to make if we were going to continue to live there. There was one of two things that we could do. 
One, we could decide to be like our neighbors, lock the doors, pull the blinds, call the cops. Or we could decide to become missionaries in the neighborhood. And we would have to begin to re-envision who we were and why we were living in that particular place. And so ministry began in that neighborhood, in that apartment for Debbie and I in those days. Remembering back on that, I think of God, the Son, Jesus, who stepped out of a really safe neighborhood, heaven where he had been. You know, heaven, streets of gold, glory all around. I mean, it was just this perfect place. He stepped out of that perfection and stepped into our brokenness. He put on our flesh and became one of us. And he did all of that because our God is a missionary God. It was how he began to think of it. It was the mindset that he had. Our God is a missionary God. I want you to just say that. Let's just say it out loud together. Can we say it this morning? Our God is a missionary God. I think we need to say it one more time. Our God is a missionary God. He thinks from a missionary mind. He has a missionary heart. And in Jesus taking on our flesh and blood, he revealed himself as a missionary God. So here's the deal. If, um, if all of us who are here this morning are Jesus followers, we've opened our hearts to Jesus, then what do you call yourself? You Jesus-loving, Jesus-following people, what do you call yourself? Help me. Christians. We call ourselves Christians. You know what that means? Little Christ. It was the term that was used in the early church of people who weren't followers to criticize and ridicule the followers of Christ. You little Christ. And the early church realized that's exactly what we long to be. By the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be so transformed that we would in some way have the mind and the heart that we would actually become like Christ living in the world, following the ways of Jesus in the world in which we find ourselves. And so, if we who are the people of God, who desire to have the mind of God, who want to walk in the ways of Jesus, if we understand that Jesus is a missionary God, that would then make us a, a missionary people. If God is a missionary God, then that makes us a missionary people. And so I want us to think about that this morning. Missionary God, missionary people. What does that mean for us? And so I want us to take this passage in Luke chapter 15 and just open it up that we might understand with more clarity who God is and who he is calling us to be. And so in Luke 15, by this point, Jesus is well into his three-year missionary, three missionary plan. And he tells these three stories in Luke 15 of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son that we might understand who he is. And so Jesus has been ministering for a while now, and the crowds are huge. He can't go anywhere without great crowds of people following. But there was a problem that was increasing with every single day. Because you see, it, it seems that Scripture records that the wrong people were coming. It was the people who had been 
disenfranchised, who had been kicked to the curb, who weren't very acceptable, that didn't know how to act, that didn't know how to be. It was the messy people. It was the broken people that were crowding in on Jesus all the time. And the church people, the religious people, the, the proper people, they were, well, they were just having a hard time with Jesus. You see, Jesus had been saying some hard things in those days. And if you were in the church, and if you had a sense of what God might be saying, you began to understand that these were hard teachings. He was saying things like, take up your cross and follow me. Are you kidding? Take up your cross? You see, for us, we, we know that the cross was kind of a bad thing and like Jesus died there. But for us, it's, it's a beautiful symbol on the wall and it's something that we hang around our necks. And it's hard for us to get our minds around what that meant to that crowd in those days. For Jesus to say, take up your cross, they all knew somebody that had been dragged out of their house that had been hauled into court, who had been nailed to a cross. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross, they were thinking of Uncle Bob. They were thinking of the neighbor down the street that the Romans had literally nailed to crosses and let them scream and hang there until they die. Are you kidding me, Lord? Take up your cross. And he went on. And he said, if you want to follow me, if you don't hate your father, and your mother, your wife, your brother, your sister, your children, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Oh, dear God, who then can be your disciple? This is a hard teaching. He was saying things like, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh to have eternal life. You might get a sense that they were struggling because if they began to believe that he was Messiah... Then they're acknowledging, what is it? Have we got a cannibal king who, who wants us to hate absolutely everybody so much so that we get ourselves nailed to a cross and that's the way to follow Jesus? And so the proper people, the religious people, the people that had some sense of, of what Scripture, what this, this Messiah might be saying, they were having a, a really hard time. But the messy people, the, the other people, the people that had been kind of pushed to the side, they were coming in, and they seemed to enjoy being around Jesus. They just loved being around him. And I, I've tried to figure out across the years why those people love being around Jesus so much. There's this one thought that keeps occurring to me that, that maybe they loved being around Jesus just because they knew that he irritated all the religious people. But I don't really think that that's the case. I think that they love being around Jesus because even though they knew that they were broken and messed up, they felt completely welcomed, completely at home in his presence. They knew that he wasn't going to lie about their brokenness, but he wasn't going to cast stones. And he wasn't in any way going to cast himself as being superior to them. You remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? I think the scripture will be up on the wall. Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
That's why they loved being with him. Those people, those messy people. And, and so I've been thinking about who they were specifically. And the Bible tells us that they were tax collectors and sinners in that order. Tax collectors and sinners. Sinners, well, they were the sinning sinners. They were doing whatever sinners do. But the tax collectors, those were the really hated people. They were the traitors among all the Jews because most of the tax collectors were Jews that had gone to work for Rome doing the job that they'd been given of collecting taxes, but they made their living by taking advantage of their family, their friends, and their neighbors with the Roman military muscle behind them. And so while there were a few honest tax collectors, most of them made enormous amounts of money by robbing their own people. And so the Jews hated them above all others. It was tax collectors and sinners that were despised by all the people. And, and so these sinners and these tax collectors, they... They seem to like to hang around Jesus, and I've been trying to imagine that in our context today. Who are the tax collectors and sinners for us? They're the people that we're not comfortable with. They're the people that make a mess of everything. They're the people that take advantage. They're the people that do all kinds of things that make society worse. They're the people that we'd like to marginalize. They're the people that we wish they weren't anywhere around and yet they loved being with Jesus. And I've imagined what that might be like for us in this way. Imagine that Jesus said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to come back to the, to the earth for just two months. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll have the final coming back thing and we'll fix everything. But I'm coming back for two months and I'm coming to Fresno. I'm just going to hang out in Fresno for a couple of months. And during the week, I'm going to do my Jesus thing, whatever that is. But on Sundays, I'm coming to Fresno First Nazarene. And, and I'll just be here. And if, and if Pastor Chris is all right with it, I'll, I'll even preach on Sundays. And he says, well, yeah, Lord, if you're going to be in church, it'd probably be a good thing if you preached. And so Jesus comes to preach for two months at Fresno First Nazarene. Imagine what it would be like the first Sunday you'd walk in and the place would be packed. I mean, standing room only packed. And it would be glorious you would be saying, this is what we prayed for. This is absolutely fantastic. But all of a sudden, over the next few weeks, you began to realize that these are not really the people that we had imagined would come to church. They're not really acting like we had imagined that they would act. And so by about week three, you get here and you can't get a parking place. And there are people parked down into the neighborhood and you have to park six blocks away and it's raining that day and you forgot your umbrella. And by the time you get to church, you're beginning to grumble just a little bit because the other people who have never been here, who have never helped you, who have never been a part, they're the ones that have taken all the spaces and so you're grumbling just a little bit under your breath and you finally get to the front door and then you see it. There's like a hundred cigarette butts on the front door of the church. And there's beer bottles at the doors of the church. And now you're not grumbling, you're just downright mad. Who are these people? They don't even know how to behave in the house of God. They don't know how to act. And you come in and kids are just running amok and they're yelling and screaming because they've never been in church before and their parents are just kind of out of control as well because they've never been in church before. But Jesus is here and you walk through the door and all of a sudden you see him just standing here and your heart, your heart is warmed 
And you say, oh my, Jesus is here. It's amazing. It's amazing. But you, you want to get up here and you can't even get close to him. You can't get close to him to tell him how much you love him and, and how much you've tried to be faithful across the years. You can't get here because all the other people, all those messy people that have caused so much trouble in Fresno, they're crowding around him and you're now having a hard time that Jesus came to your church. And that's what they were feeling. That's what they were beginning to struggle with because Jesus was turning their church that they had built and they had cared for, he was turning it upside down. I've been thinking about that group and what they might have wanted to say to the Lord, what you might want to say to the Lord. You might want to say, Lord, can, can you just come off over here for just a moment? Can we just talk? I just need to tell you how we're feeling. I'm like, we're really glad you're here. Last Sunday's sermon was awesome. It was amazing. But Lord, you need to understand that our kids don't feel safe with their kids. Their kids are the bullies at school. Their kids are the drug addicts at school. Lord, did you know that? They would sell my kids drugs if they could. Lord, we don't feel safe around them. Lord, we just kind of expected that when you came that, that you want to say some words of appreciation about our faithfulness. We've been the faithful ones. We've been the faithful ones who built it and paid for it, and have taken care of it. We've been faithful every week across all the years. We just kind of expected that when you came, we knew that you'd love the others, but we kind of thought that you'd want to be with us, that you might want to go to dinner with us, that you might want to go to our kids' soccer games. God, we're just kind of having a, a hard time. And so I've been thinking about the grumbling people in Jesus' day. And why they were grumbling People were getting saved and people were getting healed and good things were happening. But they were grumbling because the Jesus that showed up was not the Jesus that they had expected. They had been expecting Jesus, the Messiah, Messiah to show up for 400 years. They just weren't expecting a missionary God to show up. So God shows up, but not the God that they had imagined. And when expectations and reality don't match, we struggle in any age at any time. I learned that as a little boy. When I was about four, on Christmas at our church, they had announced that we're going to have a big party for all the kids. going to be games. going to be food. Oh, and by the way, Santa Claus is coming to town. It's going to be awesome. And so for weeks, I'm so excited. Santa's coming. Santa's coming. I can imagine what it's going to be like when I climb up into his lap and I look into his face and I get to tell him all the things that I really want for Christmas. And so finally the day came. And the party began, and there were games, and there was food, and we were having a great time. And all of a sudden, we hear, ho, ho, ho. And then he walks, big bowl full of jelly, big white beard, red suit. It was awesome. All the kids began to scream and line up, and it was just this great thing. And so finally, it was my turn, and I climb up into his lap, and I look into his face, and I cry out loudly, you're not Santa Claus. You're just my Uncle Charles. <laughs> and the party was over for me and 
all the kids that were standing around me because my expectations and my reality, they didn't match. That's what the people were screaming. You're not my Jesus. You're just the guy from Nazareth. You're not what we had expected. You're something way different. We never expected a missionary God to show up. And so Jesus tells them this what-if story. This story about this sheep that gets lost. He wanted them to understand who he was and what he was calling them to be a part of. And so he tells them the story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. We assume in the story that the hundred sheep represent all the people. This is all the people that there are in the world, a hundred sheep. And so the story goes, as Jesus tells us, that one of them wanders away. We're not told why the sheep wanders away. We don't know whether he had a dysfunctional sheep family, whether he'd had a bad experience in sheep Sunday school, or if he was just a naughty sheep. But what we know is he wandered away. And so the shepherd goes after him. And the scripture says that the shepherd made the choice to leave the others in the open country. It immediately suggests that there was risk and that the shepherd had to make a choice. And so the shepherd chooses to leave the 99 and to go after the one. There is great risk for the shepherd because he goes into the night where the wolves and the lions were to find the one who had wandered away. And when he finds the one, he's so excited, he puts the lamb on his shoulder. On the way back, he pulls out his cell phone. He starts texting all of his friends. He puts the lamb on Facebook. Look, Lammy is found. It's so great. Come to my house. We're going to have a party. And there was great rejoicing. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if the other sheep got into the rejoicing. We don't know if they were pretty excited or if they were kind of bummed like the older brother in the story of the prodigal. But the scripture says there was great rejoicing in heaven. And so who was it that was rejoicing? It was the other sheep hunters. It was the host of heaven. It was the angels, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were rejoicing because the lost had been found and brought back. Jesus was not saying in that story that he didn't love the 99. He'd always loved them. He'd always cared for them. He'd always provided for them. But he wanted to be completely clear. You thought that I would be like this. I'm telling you, this is who I am. This is what is important to me and my kingdom. And I want you to understand that with all of the lost people that exist in the world, if there was only one, and if I, had to choose, I would choose the one. If there was only one in all the world, and if I had to choose, I would choose the one to go after that one that they might be found and brought back into the fold. And so we hear those words, and, and we begin to try to get our, our, our minds around them, but we, we just have to acknowledge that this story, as we begin to open it up, it becomes a rather unsettling story for us. And it raises some significant questions. If Jesus, would we all agree Jesus is the good shepherd? Amen? Jesus is the good shepherd. That makes us the good sheep, right? Jesus is the good shepherd. We are the good sheep. So why would the shepherd leave 
us. Why would he leave us to go after the one? We're the faithful sheep. We're the good sheep. We're the the ones that have been there all along. Would he actually choose them over us? On a Sunday morning, according to the story, if the shepherd had to choose, would God actually choose to go after one who was lost rather than showing up here for church? Now, we understand that God can be in all places, and that's the good news. But he says, I do want you to understand who I am, that if there was only one in all of Fresno, and if I had to choose, I wouldn't show up here. I'd be out there. Now, that's just unsettling. It doesn't really line up with who we think we'd like Jesus to be because we just think that Jesus would always be here. And of course he is because the presence of God is always with us. But this is the priority that he gives to those who have wandered away, to those who are far away from God, who are disconnected and lost even this morning. And so, you know, I've been thinking, all of us here this morning, we care about lost sheep. Amen? Two. All right, let's see. Let's try this again. We care about lost sheep. Amen? Amen. Not a trick question. We care a lot about lost sheep, right? We do. And so I've been thinking, how would we actually measure how much we care for lost sheep? And so I, I want you to think about this with me this morning. So let's just say that next Sunday, next Sunday, y'all show up in a great crowd, but there's no worship. There's just no worship. Merlin just says, I, I got nothing. And Pastor Chris says, I got nothing. There, there's no worship. There's, there's no singing. There's no sermon. There's nothing that goes on. So the people show up, but there is no worship. How long would it take before someone in this congregation would call me and say, Pastor Rob, this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. No one showed up to lead worship today. It'd probably be about 15 minutes into the service. I'd be getting a phone call. And, and nobody showed up today. Nobody showed up to lead worship. Now, so then let's take that to the next step. Let's say that next Sunday, Pastor Chris, greatest sermon you've ever preached. Oh, my goodness. You just took us right to glory. Merlin, you were awesome. The band was amazing. It was just the, the greatest worship experience we've ever had. But discipleship just stopped. It didn't exist. There, there was no more small group, no more Bible study. There was just nobody that was doing it. And so there was phenomenal worship, but no discipleship. How long would it be before I'd get a call to say the people have gathered and we are saying this is unacceptable? Well, I think it'd probably be a few weeks, a, a few months before I'd finally get a call and say, we're really struggling. Woo, worship is awesome, but there is no discipleship going on in this church, and this cannot happen. Let's take it to the next step, and you know where I'm going. Let's just assume that next Sunday, Chris, whoo, amazing. Everybody wants to come and hear him preach, and the worship, the band, everything is just glorious. It's awesome every Sunday. And discipleship, oh, the Sunday school teachers have never taught better. The Bible studies have never been more amazing but evangelism simply stops. And there is no effort and no plan and no strategy. And there is nothing that intentionally happens beyond these walls. 
How long would it be before someone would call me and say, Pastor Rob, this is unacceptable. I've been DS six and a half years and I haven't gotten that call yet. I've gotten calls about everything. You might imagine, you can't even believe some of the calls that I get, but I've never gotten that call. And it's not a criticism, it's a reality check. I'm not saying something to you that I'm not saying to myself. These are the questions that I am now asking myself every single day. God, what are you going to do? If this is who you are, and if this is who you're calling me to be, what does that mean for me? How do I have to begin to respond to that? See, earlier this year, Debbie and I had the privilege of uh, having several weeks of sabbatical. And so we got away just asking God, Show us what you want us to be in this next season. Show us how to lead the church. Show us what you want us to be personally. Show us what you long for our lives to look like. And so we had some time in Europe, and we got to kind of see the, the history of the church, and we got to see the great cathedrals, and we saw the places where the church had flourished and where the churches had fallen apart. And I felt like God just spoke directly to me and I came home commissioned by God himself that he sent me home and said, Rob Songer, for the rest of your days, whatever days I give you in this assignment, I want you to figure out what it means to be a missionary district superintendent. A missionary district superintendent. My response was, huh? I'm, I'm not sure, but okay, God, I'm hearing you pretty clear. I want to I begin to figure that out. A missionary district superintendent who raises up missionary pastors who lead missionary congregations that begin to participate with this missionary God being the missionary people of God that are engaged in reaching those who have wandered away. And so I, I'm just thinking, how, how do we begin to deal with that? Because as we begin to think about this, Jesus wasn't saying that I'm... I'm going to leave you behind. The, the story wasn't a story to say you're going to be left behind. The story was an invitation. Come and be sheep hunters. When he first reached out to the disciples, what were they doing? They were fishing. So he said, why don't you be fishers of men? He tells this story and what's he saying? Why don't you be hunters of lost sheep? People who have wandered away. This is who I am. This is what I want you to be. This is the call upon your lives. And so now then, we live in the power of the resurrected life, the resurrected Christ, to be able to go. And so he sends us. What was the Great Commission? Go. Go and make disciples. I'm giving you all authority to go into the world, into your neighborhood, to the very gates of hell, to love and reach and rescue, to bring those back who have wandered away. It's a great opportunity for us to, to begin to understand what God has called us to be. And, and so I've been thinking, what would that actually look like? How would we actually begin to, to do that in our world? To begin to accept the assignment from God that wherever you live, whatever your house number is, that you're a missionary in that neighborhood. God planted you. Just as he worked with us when we made the decision to move into a little apartment in Anaheim, California, that God then planted us there to be missionaries in that community. 
Wherever you live, you are to be missionaries. Wherever you work, you are to be missionaries. If you're retired, you're, you're still an active missionary. So you never get too old to be missionaries. This, this is what we understand. Uh, you know, for me, I have the privilege of serving on the general church board of, of the Church of the Nazarene. And so every year, there are about 50 of us that gather. And we do the work of the church. And one of the things that we have the privilege of doing is commissioning missionaries. And it's just the coolest thing in all the world to see these young couples that have accepted this call to leave their comfortable places and to go into dangerous places, to go into places that have great need and great brokenness, and they go. But it's not just that we as the Church of the Nazarene give money so that we can send them. We are the ones who go. So in a few minutes, we're going to say amen. And it's not just an amen and you wander out. We say amen, and the Spirit of God sends you as missionaries on His behalf. Missionary God, missionary people. And so how would we begin then? Well, what's the first thing? And so the first question I want to ask you very quickly, uh, what's your outreach temperature? See, all of us have an outreach temperature, 1 to 10. If you're a 1, this is, again, not a criticism. It's just a, a reality. If you're a one, you might say, you know, I don't ever really think about lost people. I, I don't think of it. It's not that I hate them. I just don't think about them. They're not on my radar. I, I, I never think or am concerned or strategize. I, I never pray for lost people. It's just not on my radar. If, if you're a 10, you probably didn't even show up for church today because you're out there somewhere in the city just trying to reach people. You're always inviting, always caring. Just It's all you think about. You wake up in the middle of the night weeping over people who are lost. So what's your temperature? Well, the, the prayer that I have been praying, that I would invite you to begin to pray with me, God, increase my outreach temperature one degree. I'm not asking to go from two to ten. I'm just asking that I could become a three. And when I become a three, if I could become a four, that wherever you're at, God, would you just help me? Would you be willing to pray that prayer every single day over the next weeks? God, increase my outreach temperature one degree that I would begin to be a little uncomfortable, that I would begin to see what's going on around me, that I would begin to be aware, that I would begin to be concerned for those who have wandered away. First thing. Second thing. What's your church's outreach temperature? So again, how, how urgent is the church for reaching people who have wandered away? Do, do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan? What are you doing? How intentional is it? How often is it? What are you thinking about these days? The truth is that you don't have to hire anybody. You don't have to, to change a whole lot. You can take what you're doing, and here's the prayer. God, help us to change our outreach temperature two degrees. Just two degrees. So what are we already doing that we could do for the others? If we, if we have a dinner, how could we turn it into a dinner for the others? I know a church that they were running a financial ministry for, for, for people in the church that were struggling financially, Crown Ministry. And, and this pastor just kind of came under this burden and said, could we take that and could we just turn it two degrees? And we'll make it all about reaching people in the world who are struggling with finances. You might imagine there's some... Don't you think there's some struggling people out there that don't know Jesus that are struggling with their finances? And so they just begin to figure out what they're doing. I, I have a good friend who's a pastor, and uh, 
he was in a church that, that just didn't have any outreach. And, and so they'd always done this Thanksgiving dinner. And so he said, what can we do? Why, why do we do this Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, we don't know. We've always done this Thanksgiving dinner. What would you think if we just turned it a couple of degrees? And so they went out and they invited all the principals, the school principals in the city to come. And they had about 10 principals that showed up to that Thanksgiving dinner. And the people of the church just said, we just want you to know how thankful we are for what you do. And we want to become your prayer partners. And we want to come alongside you. They didn't change a thing. They were already doing the dinner, didn't spend any more money. And now then they've developed these partnerships in schools all over the place. Or now they're sending small groups into local schools. They're doing all kinds of ministry that has connected them. And there are teachers and there are administrators that are beginning to come into that church just because a church changed its outreach temperature just two degrees. A third thing that, that I'm thinking about very quickly, uh, what's your story? You all have a story how you came to Christ. Have you ever written it out? Everybody should write your story out. You should be able to tell it in two minutes. If you got saved as a child, there was still a reason why you got saved as a child, what you understood. You need to be able to tell your story in two minutes and say, God, okay, I've written out my story. Use my story. Fourth thing that, that I see, uh, who do you know? Do you actually have a list of people that you know who are far from God? You, you may think, well, I only know two right now. Put it on a card. Do you have it like on the refrigerator or on the mirror in your, in your bathroom where you see it every day? God, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. Dear Bob, dear God, help Bob. Help me to help Bob. Uh, Susie that lives down the street, the, the checker at the grocery store that I've become good friends with. God, help me to just be able to love them. Pray for them every single day. I think when people have a list and they have it in a prominent place, you just begin to live into the list. You get to, uh, I haven't prayed today. Oh, God, I'm going to stop right now. And I want to pray for the people on my list who are far from God. Fifth thing, how would you increase your circle? You know, how, how could you actually increase your circle? You may say, I don't know any lost people. Well, how are you going to get to know some? I have a good friend that, that came under this burden. And so uh, there was a little coffee shop that, that he knew uh, that was right close to his house. And he started going in there and just buying a cup of coffee to talk to this person that was the server there. He said it was the worst coffee he'd ever tasted. We started going in there every morning and buying a cup of coffee. He'd go out, pour it out in the gutter, and go to Starbucks. But he went in there every morning to buy a cup of coffee so that he could get to know that young server. And he began to build a relationship. And eventually he was able to tell a story. And eventually he was able to invite her to church. And eventually she gave her heart to Christ because a man came under a burden and said, I don't even know your name. I don't know anything about you. But God has just laid you on my heart. You could begin to find ways with the help of the Holy Spirit to enlarge your circle, to make the risk, to begin to engage and connect and, and get to know people who are far away. And the, the last thing on the item is, is on the list is just very simply, who are you praying for? Pray, pray, pray. It's who we're called to be. We have a missionary God, Amen. All right, two again. That's pretty good. We're, we, gotta work. we have a missionary God, amen? amen? And he's calling us to be a missionary people. And so this morning, I just want to pray over you as we close this service. 
I want you to know that something that's about to happen. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Chris is going to be with a bunch of other pastors in training to begin to understand what it would mean to be a missionary pastor. He's going to be a part of a cohort that's going to begin to talk about what it means to, to, to work on the culture of a church, to begin to think about the community, to, to begin to change things in a way where it's, it's not about turning things upside down, it's about turning things out, to begin to see and love and care for those who have wandered away, those who do not know Jesus. And so this morning, Pastor Chris, I, I want you to just come, and I want to just pray over you as, um, as we close this service, and just ask for God's blessing on you these days. Um, it may be that somebody else would just say, you know, I'm all in for that. I, I want to pray for our pastor that he could be a missionary pastor. Wouldn't you love to just be able to say to your friend, Who, who's your pastor? Oh, Pastor Chris Archer, he's a missionary pastor. If you want to come and just lay hands on him and pray that that might happen in his life, in your lives, in the life of this church, I want to ask you to just come and lay hands on him. We're just going to pray that God would anoint him and bless him and that God would use him in a powerful way these days. That somehow, this can be a church that has a great witness in this community.